Thanks for tuning in to our weekly message. Be sure to visit our website, weareheartland.us, to find out more about the ministry and all of our upcoming events. Welcome to the third and final week of our series leading up to Christmas entitled The Gifts of Christmas where we have been digging into the three gifts brought to Jesus by the Magi from the East. Today we are looking at our third and final gift. The first gift as we all know was gold and honestly who wouldn't want gold? God blessed uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph uh, with gold brought by the Magi not only to support them financially but also symbolic of Jesus being the King of Kings. Uh, he also received frankincense, which as we learned last week, was symbolic of Christ as our high priest who removed the barrier between God's presence and his people uh, for once and for all eternity. And then the third gift comes myrrh. Now, myrrh actually shares a lot of similarities with frankincense in that it was the sap uh, that came from a tree. Here's a picture of the tree, the comifera uh, tree, uh, which is where the resin, the sap, uh, comes from that, we, that they make myrrh. Uh, it could also be burned as incense like frankincense, but it was more often melted down and used as an oil, in oil uh, 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 way, uh, that would have been either used directly or mixed with olive oil or sometimes other oils as well. Uh, myrrh was most often melted and used as an oil. Uh, also like frankincense, myrrh was used as a fragrance for ver various ceremonies uh, such as weddings, even in worship offerings to the Lord. Specifically, it was used for anointing uh, various elements in the tabernacle, tab tabernacle or the temple uh, or the Ark of the Covenant. So in Exodus 30, beginning in verse 22, God gives some specific instructions which includes myrrh. Uh, let me just read that portion for you here. Uh, said then, the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, that's a lot of myrrh that the Lord started out with. Uh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant calamus, 12 and a half pounds of castor measure, and by the weight of the sanctuary shekel. Also get one gallon of olive oil. Like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing oil. Use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and table and all the utensils, the lampstand and all its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the wash basin with its stand. Consecrate them to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. So myrrh being the first and one of the main ingredients in this kind of oil concoction that the Lord says use this to anoint various elements and in doing so they become holy and in fact anything that touches them will also become holy. Uh, practically, myrrh was used for a lot of medicinal purposes, again, similar to frankincense. Uh, it was used as an antiseptic, as a painkiller, preventing gum disease, and a, as a digestive aid. Uh, it was also used as a perfume, and it was mixed with food and drink for purification. Many actually believe that myrrh was the most valuable gift that Jesus received from the wise men, even more than gold, based on how rare it was and its potency for its many uses. 
Now, uh, as I said last week, the gifts going from gold to frankincense, that, that was kind of a hard left it took, going from, you know, a valuable metal to tree sap. And uh, even though the third gift is also tree sap, when it comes to the symbolism behind myrrh, we are going to take, if you can believe it, an even harder left. So we went gold, hard left, then harder left. So we're going backward. I don't know, that doesn't, my metaphor doesn't really make sense. But symbolism-wise, we're making another really hefty turn right here. The reason being, uh, myrrh held a powerful symbolic meaning for Jesus because of what it was most often used for in the ancient world. As I said, it would have been used for a lot of different elements to benefit the health of the body, but the main use for myrrh in the first century and what it would have been uh, most known for by anybody in that culture was that myrrh was used as part of the burial process for dead bodies. In many cultures, myrrh was used as an embalming fluid for bodies. Now, Jewish law actually prohibited cremation or embalming as they believed the body was born of dust and meant to return to dust like the Lord said in Genesis 3.19. But myrrh, even for the Israelites, was still one of, if not the main part of the burial process and it had been for generations over generations in the Israelites. The Israelites would take myrrh and anoint the entire body for burial, both because myrrh had a powerful scent and also controlled moisture around the body. So we go from Jesus' kingship to his priesthood to a substance used to prepare dead bodies for burial. Like I said, real hard left. I imagine that for Mary and Joseph and many others, Myrrh would have been a little bit of an odd gift to give anyone, let alone a toddler or a young child. They would have immediately connected myrrh to the use, its use for death and for burial. But this gift given to Jesus shortly after his birth is vitally important because it reminds us, us of why he was born in the first place. I've talked about this before, but my all-time favorite Christmas song, I appreciate all the old classics, and I love, you know, when new artists or bands kind of write their own thing or do a cover song or something, but my absolute favorite Christmas song of all time, uh, I remember I heard it in the early 2000s by a Christian rock group called Reliant K, and they released a Christmas EP. One of their songs is called I Celebrate the Day, and there was a single line in that song that the first time I heard it, I have never forgotten it. The line of the song simply says, I celebrate the day that you were born to die so I could one day pray for you to save my life. And it was the first time I had heard the phrase, born to die, and I've never forgotten it. I remember soon after seeing this picture of a manger with the shadow of the cross on it and being so impacted by that image. And the truth that Jesus was born to die. So often uh, we've thought of, or at least I have thought of the celebrations of Christmas and Good Friday of being totally separate, you know, light years, oceans apart. One is really joyful with music and decorations and gifts, while the other is very somber and powerful in its remembrance. And yet, those two celebrations, those two remembrances are inseparable because the celebration of Christmas happens for the purposes of Good Friday. Jesus was born to die. He was born for a very specific purpose, to save humankind from separation from their Heavenly Father. 
the sin that every human has, is, or will commit, was rested on the shoulders of Jesus as he was crucified on the cross, taking our punishment for sin of death, because a divine holy God cannot be amongst sin. So Jesus said, I will take that punishment so there will be nothing between us and God. God was not okay with any kind of separation between us. He was so not okay with it that he sent his son to burden the punishment for it. And not just the sin of a few people who did enough good deeds to get into heaven, not just like the super perfect or super righteous or whatever people. Jesus took the sin of every single human being. Every sin ever committed by every person that has, does, or will ever exist. Jesus paid that price. And that is why he was born. In addition to Jesus' sacrificial death being foretold multiple times, uh, hundreds of years prior in many, many prophecies about Jesus, it was also foretold soon after his birth through the gift of myrrh by the wise men. That God wanted to make it clear. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the high priest who, who will remove all barriers between God and his people. But in order to do that, he came here. He surrendered his divinity. He was born as a human, as a baby, as a child in order to die. Represented through this tree sap of myrrh. And appropriately enough, the only times we see myrrh mentioned as a part of Jesus' life are at his birth and at his death. In fact, there are actually two instances during the crucifixion of Christ that myrrh is mentioned. First, it's offered to Jesus as he's being crucified, as I said, since myrrh was known for being a painkiller. In Mark 15, 23, 23 we read, uh, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And the second time we see myrrh, is when Jesus was in line with uh, Jewish custom and Jewish tradition based on the commandments of the Lord, when Jesus' body was prepared for burial immediately following his death. And that is what I'd like to finish our time with today. I want to conclude with one part of the account of Jesus' death, which is this, who brought the myrrh? We obviously know the wise men, the magi, they brought Jesus myrrh soon after his birth, but who brought the myrrh soon after his death? It wasn't his mother, Mary. It wasn't one of his disciples. In fact, it wasn't even one of his typical followers. It was someone we find in an earlier account with Jesus in one of the most unique encounters in all of Scripture. First, a little bit of background. As you might be aware, uh, the majority of religious leaders and Pharisees despised Jesus. That seems like kind of a, a well-known fact. If you know anything about the New Testament, you, when we think of Jesus and Pharisees, you're like, yeah, they hated Jesus. Pharisees hated Jesus. Now, this was generally true uh, for two reasons. The first reason is that Jesus' teaching on God's law prioritized the heart above the action. Prioritized the heart above all else. And the Pharisees were most often concerned with their outward appearance, with their behavior versus their heart. So a couple examples. Jesus taught that yes, adultery is a sin, but even looking lustfully at a person in our hearts is equally a sin. 
He said, Jesus said, yes, murder is a sin, but also carrying around anger and hatred and unforgiveness towards somebody is equally sinful in the eyes of God. He made it clear that God is not about just behavior modification or simply checking all the boxes of obedience or behavior. That is not what is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's required is our heart. God is about transforming our hearts and our minds to be more like the people he made us to be, to be more like him whose image we were created in, because as he transforms our hearts, our outward actions will naturally follow and be genuine and authentic and increase the kingdom of God in the world that we live in. And this upset the vast majority of the religious leaders and Pharisees, because they had devoted their lives to behavior modification down to every minuscule detail. And in doing so, they completely neglected to have hearts or live lives of love and servitude or generosity. Jesus even went as far as to call them whitewashed tombs, saying, you look good on the outside, but on the insides there is death and decay. So when Jesus comes along, Preaching this message based on scripture, based on the Torah, based on what they'd studied and memorized, the Pharisees were deeply, deeply upset, knowing he was speaking directly to them. Jesus saying, who you are is more important than what you do, but the Pharisees had spent so much time on what they did and belittling and judging those for what they did that they completely missed it, and Jesus' teaching struck them right to the core. So that was reason one most of the Pharisees hated Jesus because he was challenging their way of life, their way of leadership in a deeply personal way. The second reason they generally disliked Jesus is because Jesus claiming to be God blasphemed, uh, offended, belittled the holy name of the Lord in their eyes. Now, partly because of the first reason I mentioned, the majority of religious leaders didn't even give this claim a chance because they simply wanted to protect themselves, defend themselves, saying Jesus is a blasphemer, he's offensive, he doesn't know what he's talking about, we're obeying the law, we're getting it right, this man is speaking, you know, he's crazy, he's saying he's God, you know, we should crucify him, which led to the uproar there. Uh, now, part of me, I can sort of see the value in this, that, uh, you know, the religious leaders wanted to honor and protect the, the reverent, the holy name of God, but most of the time when you see their motives behind this, they are simply uh, upset because the Lord is challenging their heart. Again, maybe part of their motivation was, hey, we're in this place to honor and protect the name of the Lord. I get that, but the vast majority of time they accused Jesus of being a blasphemer was because Jesus was speaking about the heart, not the action, and they took personal offense to it. And so they totally missed it. They didn't even give, give Jesus' claims a chance despite everything he said lining up with the Holy Scriptures, lining up with the heart and character of God. But there were a few who knew Jesus was something more, knew that Jesus was something real. There are just a, a very few times, but there are a couple in the New Testament where we read of Pharisees, of religious leaders, uh, getting it. One such person was a man named Nicodemus, who happened to be a religious leader. Way back in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, uh, we read, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. 
And what follows is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Nicodemus genuinely sought truth and knowledge from Jesus, which he listened to. Even though he wanted to meet Jesus at night, since the majority of his peers hated Jesus, his heart knew there was something true, there was something real about Jesus, which he desired to understand. And it becomes clear that this conversation made a deep impact on Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is the one who brought myrrh to bury Jesus with. Moments following Jesus' death in John chapter 19, verse 38, says, Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came back and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made with myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. Nicodemus was not in the shadows anymore. He wasn't using night as a cover. Nicodemus shows up even when many of Jesus' own followers had deserted him or turned against him. He shows up to prepare Jesus' body for burial with 75 pounds of myrrh. He did this both in obedience to God based on the customs of what God had taught them in the Old Testament and also to demonstrate his belief and devotion to Jesus. Not Peter, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader, takes the body of Christ down from the cross, anoints his body with myrrh, wraps him in linen cloths, and lays him in the tomb. Back in John 3, during their conversation, Jesus, speaking to the man who would bring myrrh and prepare his own body for burial, he says this to Nicodemus in one of the most famous scriptures of all time, John 3, 16 and 17. He says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. And if you want a succinct reason why we celebrate Christmas, why Jesus was born, that's it right there. Not because Jesus was born as a baby and stayed that way, but because he came for an eternal purpose that affects us all, which was accomplished through his death and resurrection. Because Jesus' birth was not the end of the story. Jesus' death was not the end of the story. In many ways, it was the beginning. It was a new beginning. The symbolism of myrrh being given to Jesus as a baby was not a bummer of a gift. Of course, in, you know, out of context, it might appear gold, frankincense, and then the substance used for death to any other child would have seemed like a really downer of a gift for a young child, but not for Jesus because the knowledge that he was born to die is the greatest news the world has ever known. He was born to die because he loves you. Because he literally gave up everything so that he wouldn't have to spend a second of now or all eternity apart from you. 
Jesus was prophesied to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And while this definitely pertains to his birth and the celebration of Christmas, it also holds an eternally bigger meaning. That Jesus is Emmanuel because God wants to be with us right now and for all eternity. And Jesus was born so that could happen. At work, at school, when we are our most sinful, when we're most like Jesus, when we're alone, when we're with friends, when we're out shopping, when we're driving, when we're shoveling, God is Emmanuel. God is with us. Jesus came to be with us in human form, born as a baby, live fully a human life, being fully God and fully human at the same time, so that he could willingly lay down his life on a cross to then take it up again. And say, now, you can be with me. Jesus can be Emmanuel right now. Not just when he was born as a baby. Not just someday once eternity starts happening. But right now. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why this gift meant so much to the world. That these wise men, these magi, I don't know uh, the story of how God instructed them what gifts to bring, if they had a sense or a prompting, or maybe they just chose it and God used it in powerful ways. Whatever it was, these gifts meant so much. Declaring Jesus' kingship, that he is the king of kings, that he is the high priest who will, who will eliminate any separation between God and us, and in doing so, he will walk to the cross with complete love, for every person that has, does, or will exist, for every sin that they have, are, or will ever commit, Jesus says, I love you enough to be born to die so that never again will we have to be separated from him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, as we celebrate this holiday of you being born, as I said, you are no longer a baby in a manger. We celebrate the gift that you were to the human race, not just because you were born, but Lord, the purpose that you were born for. And God, the humility that you demonstrated, surrendering your divine privileges to be born a human, and then to willingly lay down your life for us. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because you came to be with us. Not just once, not just for a few minutes. You came so that we would never have to say, God is not with me. We would never be able to say, I can't be with God. Because through your sacrifice, through your resurrection, you are here with us right now in this moment. No matter where we're watching or listening from, no matter what kind of day or week or year or decade we have had, whether we are in the deepest valley or on the highest peak, Lord, you are here. And I pray in this moment we would just become aware of and acknowledge your presence. That through what we're celebrating this holiday season, we right now know that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel. And so, Lord, I pray for these coming weeks, as we celebrate your birth, as we celebrate gifts, as we celebrate with family and friends, whether in person or distance, God, that we would not be able 
to get rid of the knowledge that you are with us, that your presence would take on new meaning and new intensity and new love and new passion during this Christmas 2020. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. For service times and details, head to weareheartland.us.